from KQED. There's a day that will never leave Beth McGee's memory, Sunday, December 9th, 1984. The Friday before, her three-year-old daughter, Neola, packed up the homemade Cabbage Patch doll Beth made for her and set off for a weekend with her father, Beth's estranged husband, Tom. The next day, Beth tried to call to check in, but there was no answer. She kept trying all night. I was numb. I was desperate. I was terrified. Finally, around 2 a.m., Beth got into her car. This was in Columbus, Ohio. It was snowy and icy, and she was panicking. She drove to the house where Tom lived, in Athens, about two hours away. There was no car there, no footprints in the snow, um, no wood by the front door to burn, no no smoke coming out. You know, we heated with wood, no smoke coming out of the um, chimney. And I just opened the door, and the house was cleared out. There was a phone still sitting on the floor. There was a mattress up against the wall. All the books were cleared off the bookshelves. And um, just no sign of them. This is The Leap. I'm Judy Campbell. And that day, when Beth discovered her three-year-old daughter had been abducted by her husband, the concussive waves from that day are still being felt, more than three decades later. First, a warning. There are some difficult themes in this episode, probably not suitable for kids. When Beth met her husband, Tom, in Ohio, they had a lot in common. He had an organic farm. She had a horticulture degree, had been growing her own food, and was raising mules. They were both rugged, self-sufficient. And Beth liked Tom's worldliness, riding camels across deserts with nomads, doing anthropology fieldwork in Mexico, Peace Corps in El Salvador. After about six months of knowing each other, they decided to have a baby together. And Beth loved the peaceful time alone with her daughter, Neola, playing in the garden, reading endless books. Neola had an insane appetite for stories. So Beth made a cassette of her reading to Neola so she could continue listening after she went to bed. Young, You don't even have the right kind of wood in your broomstick. No wonder you can hardly take off. You'll never learn. Really, Wendy, you don't know anything. Mama, she's got old plastic like me. But Beth had been seeing disturbing things with Tom. There was the time her pregnant cat got into their lettuce seeds, and he slammed it against the wall. And another time. He had killed some raccoons that had been getting into things. He drowned them and skinned them and would love to taunt me with their skins and put them on his feet. And just, I mean, he got very, very bizarre. Tom was big and strong. He nearly made it to the Olympic swimming butterfly. So it was scary when he'd rage when he was drunk. He'd put his fist through walls. He'd break dishes. But he was loving with his daughter, and Beth thought she could help him get better. And then Neola walked in on one of their fights, Tom screaming, hurling things around the room. She looked at me and looked at him, and she started going, sorry, Mommy, sorry, Daddy, sorry, Mommy, sorry, Daddy. And like a kid does, she took on the whole burden of things not working on herself at one and a half. And I went, that's it. This is affecting her. I'm out of here. They split up and had started negotiating the divorce. Neola was spending time with both of them. And then Beth noticed a few strange things with Neola when she was about two and a half. One time, she ran her hand up her uncle's shorts. And when he told her to stop, she said her father let her do it to him. And there was another incident that raised the question of if he might have inappropriately touched her. Beth told her therapist, and that triggered a child welfare investigation. A psychiatrist interviewed Neola and Tom and issued an evaluation. 
that he couldn't say for sure whether Tom had molested Neola or not, but that he felt he was the kind of person who could do that and think it wasn't wrong, and that I should have full legal and physical custody and he should have supervised visits. I was really worried about what Tom would do at that point. Tom learned about this news, that Beth would probably get full custody just before that visit on the snowy day in December. I was terrified to let her go, but I also knew I had, there was absolutely nothing I could do because he was so strong and he left with her. And I went back in the house and I had the feeling that I wouldn't see her. Beth says the pain of losing her only child was so intense that her brain would shut it off, erase her memories every night. I would wake up in the morning and I would not know who I was. I wouldn't know where I was. I wouldn't know anything. I just would have this raw awareness. And slowly, 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 my consciousness would come back in and I'd know who I was and where I was and then just feel like I was dying all over. But it helped that at first there was so much to do. She had to file a police report and tell investigators everything she knew about Tom and where he might go. She went with the police to his farm, his friends' houses. They went through his trash. Beth hired a private investigator right away. Everyone was scrambling. There was a three-day stakeout at a motel in Ohio. It wasn't him. Then they thought they found him in Columbia, South America. And then it turned out that that was all a false lead. There were so many places he could have run to. Tom had been in the Peace Corps in El Salvador. When he was done, he walked home to Los Angeles. So he knew El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico. He had hitchhiked all over India, spent time in Colombia and Afghanistan. They suspected he had left the country. He didn't like the United States all that well, and, you know, he wasn't going to stick around. The promising leads in the case, the possible sightings, the stakeouts, were threads of hope that Beth clung to, that this could all end at any minute. But after about five months, all the leads had proven wrong. The threads snapped. Tom and Neola seemed to have just disappeared. Beth put the private investigators on hold. She'd taken out loans to pay for them. And then it was just about waiting and trying to figure out how to live in this new reality. I wrote poems about her. I had a bedroom for her. I had all her Christmas presents wrapped up and on the bed. She took a lot of long walks. In the morning, the time that I would get up and walk was the time I would kind of emotionally be with her. That would be my time to just connect with her. Four years passed this way. And then, in January 1988, when Neola was nearly seven years old, Beth got a call. I get a call from the FBI, and they tell me that they believe they had located them in Puebla, Mexico. I talked to a woman named Elizabeth Turner. In 1988, she was working in the U.S. consulate in Mexico City, and she got very involved and emotionally attached to this case, which started when an alert came into her office from Oaxaca. A woman on the beach had noticed this child who struck her attention as there was something wrong with this picture. Turner says the woman talked to the kid and then flirted with the dad so she could get information. She got their names and found out they were on vacation from his job teaching at the Autonomous University in Puebla. 
the woman told the authorities, who searched on Neola McGee's name. And it came up that, oh my God, this is a missing child. Authorities went to the university to grab Tom out of his classroom. But before they could, a secretary told Tom there were some Americans looking for him, and he cleared out. Tom and Neola had gotten away. And we missed her by hours. It broke my heart that we didn't that we didn't find this little girl. But they were a lot closer. Beth McGee flew to Mexico and found a private investigator there. She went to the embassy in Mexico City, where the ambassador told everyone to take this case seriously. Interpol, Mexican Federales, and the FBI were in on the search. The investigator went to Puebla, and Beth went along. They scoured the town for signs of Tom and Neola, and they found the school Neola had been going to. But when we got there, she was no longer in school there, and we, we missed them. But for the first time in four years, Beth had evidence of her daughter's life. It sounded like she was doing pretty well in school. I got pictures of her. I got embroidery work that she had done. I got a workbook that she had done. What did that feel like, getting It was very mixed. You know, at least I had something she had touched, something she had done, something from her. The picture of her was the first picture I had seen of her that was for sure her. It was um, very emotional. The private investigator was turning up lots of traces of Tom and Neola's life. And Beth could help because she knew Tom, like that he was obsessed with his teeth. I knew he'd be to a dentist. I knew he would be trying to get gold fillings. I knew he would be doing something like that. We found the dentist he had been going to in Cholula. I knew he would be swimming. We found the place in Puebla where he took Neola to swim every day. Finally, Beth had signs. Her daughter was alive. She was going to school. She was swimming. So that was a huge relief. But there was still so much more to worry about. Like that question, had Tom molested Neola? Beth hung on to a hope that if he had molested Neola back in Ohio... That because he had gotten caught for being sexually inappropriate with her, that maybe that might have stopped it. That's what I was really hoping. I didn't know. And then... Now that he was tipped off that they were on his trail, now that people who had known him were being interviewed, now that there were stakeouts, what would he do? One of my big fears was if we pushed too hard, he'd end up going someplace super remote. And so I was terrified of that because I didn't want that to happen to her. At times, they felt like they were just around the corner from Neola, like they'd stepped on her shadow. One time, someone in a plaza looking at the photos said he'd seen them earlier that day. I mean, we literally looked like we were possibly that close, but we never actually found them. Once again, they disappeared. No clues to where they had gone. The private investigator kept working. Beth went home, deflated, to wait for news, and again, to try to reconcile to a life without her daughter. As the years went on, Beth went to graduate school. She became a social worker, got a job, and moved to Northern California. Meanwhile the case was still open. I had about seven FBI agents, and I think mine was the cold case that the new guy got, because I would always get a call from time to time from an FBI agent saying, oh, I'm your new agent, and then we'd talk. Beth decided not to blanket Mexico with pictures of Neola. She was scared that would drive them further underground, and she knew that Tom, under pressure, could get violent. It was an uneasy gamble she hoped would pay off in a slightly better life for Neola with Tom. 
Then in 1993, after Neola had been gone about nine years, she was 12 now, Best father made a suggestion. There's a way to contact him. Maybe you really need to say, just, just bring her back. Let me see her. You know, maybe just try to be involved in her life. Beth suspected there were people who knew where he was. She suspected his mother had been in touch. And there was a friend of his who was a lawyer. If she had a compelling enough offer, maybe she could reach him. So she decided, a big, hard decision, to drop the abduction charges and allow Tom to live with Neola, as long as Beth could see her and be involved. It felt like it was the last resort. Things had taken so long, we hadn't made any progress, she still wasn't back, and to at least be able to be part of her life. It definitely didn't feel good, but once I realized it may be the only chance, then when I committed to it, I committed to it. Letters were sent through the lawyer, who knew someone who knew how to get in touch with Tom. Beth wrote one to Neola. I just told her that I knew it must be really hard for her. I wanted to be part of her life, that nobody was going to hurt her dad, that she could live where she wanted. And one to Tom. I'm sorry you've been through what you've been through. Just let me see her. Weeks passed, and then... My parents were visiting me, and the phone rang, and I picked up the phone, and it was Neola. We're going to take a short break. Stay with us. When we left off, Neola was 12 years old and on the phone with Beth. I didn't want to talk to her. My dad made me talk to her. This is Neola. I wanted to come back, but I... I was scared that my mom was going to take me and force me to live with her, and I didn't want to see her. Neola often told people she didn't have a mother. She hadn't seen her since she was three. And her father had told her her mother was crazy, a lost woman, hell-bent on keeping Neola from him. She remembered very little from her early years with her mom. I remember our cat, a few visits with family members, and than the car trip that we took on our way out of Ohio. With her dad, that December day, she doesn't remember questioning why they ended up in Mexico or where her mother was. Neola says she and her dad landed in the town of Puebla, a colonial city in central Mexico. Her dad had become friends with a group of bullfighters when he was traveling there before, and they introduced him around. He was very charismatic. He could make friends with everybody. In minutes. He just knew how to strike up a conversation with anybody at any level and develop an instant friendship. They had a lot of friends in Puebla. Her father had a good job. They would go on vacations, to the beach. Life was pretty normal. And then one day, when she was seven, her dad didn't pick her up from school. I waited and waited and waited for him to pick me up, and he didn't pick me up when I was supposed to. A friend of her father's finally got her and brought her to meet Tom at a hiding spot. It was the day her father got tipped off at the university. And that's the day a lot changed for Neola. It's when she found out they were running from the law and why. I remember him sitting me down and telling me that my mom believed that he had done something bad and had made accusations against him and was trying to take me away from him. I never questioned him. Why? I guess because he's all I had. 
Once Tom knew the authorities were on his tail, they were on the run. And what Beth had worried would happen, happened. They fled to very remote places, and things got harder for Neola. They'd moved from village to village, staying just a few months. When he found a spot that seemed safe to stay, he'd case it out, find the hiding spots, and then run drills with Neola, timing her. And I'd hear the whistle, and then I'd have to run, and I'd have to take a route that concealed me, that didn't leave tracks, to get to the hiding spot, and then stay in the hiding spot for a certain amount of time, and then move to the next spot where he would meet me. They got a lot of help. Tom's mother was sending him money from the States, and a lot of people took them in. Priests hid them in an abandoned convent for a while. Niola says her dad was good at making people think he was doing a great thing. A brave man fighting for his daughter and going against the system and doing whatever it took to rescue his daughter. Stereotypically, a single male, especially back then, wasn't seen as someone capable of raising a daughter by himself. To them, he was a hero. Tom had big plans for Neola. He told her she was smarter, stronger, better than other people. He wanted her to be self-sufficient and a critical thinker. Yes, he taught me to question everything and everybody except for him. He taught her how to fight when she was three years old, so she wouldn't have to cow to anyone. She fought a lot, stuck up for herself against boys who would tease her. She was tough and savvy. What other people considered rebellious and wild in me, he considered strength and intelligence. Neola mostly didn't go to school once they were on the run. He took charge of her education. So when I was eight years old, I was reading chapters out of the Oxford translation of the Odyssey and answering critical thinking type questions and essay formats. Tom told her that her great abilities meant there was no excuse when she didn't behave the way he wanted her to. He had so many rules. No interrupting, no intervening in conversations, absolutely never, ever, ever contradicting him in public. He had me trained to where uh, if he said, Silence. I had to be silent, and I couldn't speak without asking for permission. I couldn't even speak to ask for permission. I had to raise my hand, and I'd point to my mouth, which meant I wanted to say something, and then he would decide when it was okay for me to say something or not. He had a little notebook that he carried with him, and he would keep track. He would have little tally marks for every time that I broke one of the rules, every time I interrupted, because he didn't want to draw attention to us, so he didn't discipline me in public. So every time that I broke one of the rules, he would keep a little mark. And then when we'd get back home, he'd count up the marks. And depending on how he was feeling that day, each mark was either one or ten or however many strikes with the belt or switch. He hit her on her palms or the soles of her feet, sometimes so many that she couldn't walk. As they traveled, conditions got rougher. Places wouldn't have water or toilets. There was a place with cockroaches all over the walls. Neola got typhoid. Her dad no longer had a job and food was scarce. Neola was often hungry. He was drinking more, taking less care of her. I used to steal his money so I could go buy food. That's one thing I liked about him being drunk. I would steal his money and I'd put it in the bottom of my shoe. And then when I'd go into town, I'd buy some fruit. And over time, the way he disciplined her would change. It had always been ritualistic, stand against a wall, offer up the foot or palm for a designated number of lashes. But as he drank more, it got more out of control. He did lose control sometimes to where he would hit me with his fists. If I 
screamed or cried too loud, he would put his hand over my mouth. And I can remember the feeling of asphyxiating because he was also covering my nose so I couldn't breathe. Um, I'm sure he wasn't covering my nose on purpose. Um, but that's when I remember feeling like I might die because I couldn't breathe. Sometimes if he gave her a bloody nose or a black eye, he would punish himself. He would call himself a failure and start hitting his own head and saying how he was going to go throw himself in front of a bus and what would I do then? Good point. What would she do? He was my world. He's all I had. When the letter offering to drop charges came from her mother, her dad was in a bad place, and she thinks accepting the offer was his easiest choice. His way of living and making the money last wasn't really working out anymore. And I think he was scared that he wasn't going to be able to keep it up. He was looking into getting our identities changed and moving to Colombia. Neola was ready to leave that life too, but not to lose her father. I was also terrified that my mother wouldn't keep her word and that he would be arrested and I would be forced to be with her. When Neola and her dad flew to the U.S., there was a deal to drop charges. But the FBI still needed to meet him at the airport and put him in custody briefly for processing. To 12-year-old Neola, she just saw that he was getting arrested. The promise had been broken. I was expecting to get out of the plane and meet with my mom, but she wasn't outside the plane. It was FBI agents, and they took my dad and me to some isolated room somewhere. And at some point, they told him to stand up, and they got ready to put handcuffs on him. And as they were handcuffing him, I jumped on the um, agent that was handcuffing him and tried to jab his eyes out with my thumbs. I was protecting my dad. And you were a good fighter. Did you hurt him? Well, and my dad, it says that in the courtroom he had a big black eye, so I must have. (laughs) (laughs) It was a combination of fear and anger and just being desperate. And I really thought I was going to get them all off of him and we were going to be able to escape. Which, of course, didn't happen. Neola felt she'd been tricked. She was so angry when she was brought into the room where her mother was waiting. I didn't see her right away. I recognized her voice. Um, and that was, that was scary because I felt like the warmth inside when I heard her voice. So that was interesting. Tell me a little more about that. What did you feel? Um, like a squeeze inside my chest. Beth took in the sight of the daughter she hadn't seen in nine years and watched as Neola recognized her. She was very, very thin and small, dressed in a little cotton dress with a straw hat. And she looked over and saw me, and she gave me this little tiny smile. And at that point, I was like, okay, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Beth had to make sure Neola wanted the charges against her father dropped. She did. And that she wanted to live with her dad. She did. And then it was about trying, against all circumstances, to keep things normal. I just tried to be with her and not ask her a lot of questions. You know, just be together. 
I didn't run to her and grab her and, oh my God, honey, or anything like that. I just gave her space. The arrangement was that Neola and her father would live in Los Angeles with Tom's mother. She'd go to middle school there, and she'd visit Beth in Northern California every other weekend. Beth had to figure out how to mother a child who she hadn't known for the past nine years and how to help her heal. One way was feeding her. In the first year, Beth says Neola grew from about 5 feet to 5'10". It's called catch-up growth. It can happen when malnourished kids get to better circumstances. The amount of food she would eat on the weekend, she was eating like 6,000 calories a day. I mean, I, I fed her so much food, and she just I was just constantly buying clothes for her. If Neola broke a glass or made a mistake with homework, she'd cower, waiting to be beaten. Beth says in the first year or so, Neola had an intense physical need. She'd want to sleep in bed with Beth, and she'd plaster herself against her. She'd have her arms wrapped around me, her legs wrapped around my legs, her, her head on my chest, my arms around her all night. Beth would play those bedtime stories she recorded for Neola when she was a toddler. The witch who was afraid of witches. So I still had that cassette when she came back. So I got her on my lap. I'm holding on to her while she's, we're listening to those stories together. She had the weakest witch power. And she was afraid of witches. Older, bossy, mean witches like her two sisters. It was as if Neola was trying to go back to those early years. She even wanted a bottle. And I was working with a therapist at that point, and she said, get her one, just set it at the side, fill it with water, and just set it down. If she wants it, she'll grab it. And she did actually get the bottle. I came in, she was drinking from the bottle, and I actually was cradling her, and she was her face looked like it did when she was a baby. She was staring into my eyes the way a baby does, patting my cheek the way a baby does. But at the same time, she was in middle school, making friends. And that's when Neola started to change the way she thought about what she'd been through and the way she'd been raised. My friends would talk about how they got grounded and couldn't watch TV for a week, and they'd be so upset. And to me, it was absurd not getting to watch TV a week versus being beaten to where you couldn't stand was kind of... It felt petty to me that they would be so upset over something so dumb. And the more kids that I talked to, the more I realized that my story was the one that was off, not theirs, because they were all getting punished in similar ways, and my punishments were much more severe than any of theirs. About a year in, after visiting her mother every other weekend, Neola decided she wanted to live with her full time. They lived in a rural area in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and Neola liked that. She had a close friend nearby, and her mother got her a horse that she loved, took care of, and rode for hours. Neola and Beth took a camping trip with their horses. So there were good things, great things. But she was also rewriting the story of her life, reviewing what had happened to her. I think I was just confused, angry. Angry, angry, angry. In a way, she felt parentless. She hated her father now, and she was scared of him. She got a restraining order against him. But after that initial clinging, things were getting tough with her mother, now that they were in each other's lives full time. I wasn't used to having a mom. So here's this lady that comes into my life and starts trying to tell me what to do and what not to do. And I don't think it would have been much different than plucking somebody out of their home and putting them in a foster home. And she didn't. She didn't know me, so how was she supposed to work with me if she didn't know what she was working with? You had already been raised. Uh Uh-huh. 
Beth says Neola went from being so close she was almost under her skin to shoving her away. But Beth, she was craving closeness and didn't really know how to get it. We have nine years of not seeing each other every morning. You know, we have nine, almost nine years of not saying good morning every morning, not being able to talk her in at night. All those little things that bond you to your child didn't happen. So our attachment was interrupted. And you can't go back and make that happen again. And Beth had a fear in her bones that Neola would be taken again, that she'd never come back. I remember when I'd go pick her up from high school, if she wasn't right there waiting for me, I had about a 30-second window before I would just start breaking out into a sweat. I'd start shaking. To Neola, this was suffocating. Her mother always wanted to be with her, to know where she was, what she was doing, how she was feeling. Clingy, smothering, uh, controlling, like she wanted to put me in chains and keep me up against her out of fear of losing me again. Neola doesn't remember a lot of her teenage years. She says she was angry and sad. She got in fights in school, and she once kicked her mother in the chest and broke some ribs. After high school, Neola got married when she was 19 and had a kid. Most of the time, Neola refused to speak to her father, and then he died in 2012 of cancer. I was so relieved. All my fear disappeared, literally overnight. But then with it, A lot of my anger went with it. After he died, Neola went to his house in Ohio. A friend of his told her that her dad said his house had been robbed and valuable things, her grandmother's ring, coins they collected in Mexico, things her dad always said he wanted her to have, were taken. But when she looked around the house, she found them all, hidden in odd places where she somehow knew to look. Like she'd see a box and she'd think, That's the type of place where he would have put this specific stuffed animal and I'd open the box and there's the stuffed animal and then I would think, I bet, and the foot of that stuffed animal is a certain little thing and I'd open up the foot of the stuffed animal and there it is. It was really, really strange. I knew where everything was in that house where I had never been. It made me realize that I was closer to him than I thought I had been. And that was unsettling. Because this psycho knew me better than anybody else. Neola still doesn't understand it all. She says she can't remember if her father molested her. And right now, she doesn't want to give it too much thought. She doesn't really want to know. She's once again rewriting her own story and what it means to her. And she's thinking about how much of the person she is, the person she's proud of, comes from her father. Throughout all my teenage years, when I was too busy feeling sorry for myself, I would have gone back and changed everything. Now I wouldn't change a minute of it. You wouldn't change a minute of it? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't change the beatings? Nope. The lying? Nope. Why? Even though my dad did all those awful things, he also succeeded in making me strong and confident and teaching me to question things and the things that he, that he taught me did make me strong and open and what he wanted. It was just jumbled up with all the bad stuff, too. Neola also credits her father with expanding her world, introducing her to a Mexican culture and people that she loves. I feel like I'm betraying my mother. I feel like any type of positive feelings towards my father betray her. Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm good, how are you? (laughs) 
the rest of your Christmas present. Hi. The reason I know Beth is because about a year ago, she wrote to ask if I was interested in telling this story. Part of her hope was that it would create an opening for her and Neola to talk about what happened and maybe bring a better understanding between them. And that's what they're trying to do this day at Neola's seaside apartment. They live about an hour from each other and see each other occasionally. Their relationship still feels rocky to them both. Beth is still a social worker. Neola is a police officer. She's remarried, this time to a woman. Her daughter is now seven. By now, a quarter of a century has gone by since Neola flew back from Mexico with her father. And she and her mother are about to have a conversation they've never had. Where were you living? When the whole thing started, we were in a town called San Jose. Mm -hmm. That was just on the border of the state of Michoacan. They're talking about the details of Neola's time in Mexico. Beth knows some bits and pieces, but they've mostly avoided the topic, focusing on the present. I ask, how is it you haven't talked about this before? I don't know how Neola feels about this, but I feel like we don't want to hurt each other. That's probably pretty accurate. Because there are so many minefields in revisiting the past, how can they talk about that without bringing up Beth's hatred of Tom and Neola's positive feelings and without remembering all that pain? Neola feels her mother hasn't wanted to hear about that time. And to her, that means her mother doesn't really want to know the whole Neola. It felt like she was so stuck in the loss that she wasn't able to accept that I was back. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, you lost me for nine years, but hello, I'm here now. But it's like she didn't really see me because she was stuck in my having been lost. Beth says she understands that now. But she says she's been working hard recently to move beyond that grief that has so defined her for more than 30 years. She raises up her right hand. And this hand, this hand, still has a memory of holding that little girl's hand. My hands still miss that little girl. That doesn't mean that I'm, the grief is a central part of me, but that missing is never gonna go. But it's not the center of me anymore. See, I think part of the disconnect is that that feeling that you still have mm-hmm. of my hand in your hand, I don't have that. Of course you don't. And it's not, it, it's gone, not on purpose. It's not your fault it's gone, it's not my fault it's gone, but it's a fact it's gone and there's no getting it back. I've tried. And I think that... And it, it, it hurts me that I know, I know how much it hurts you, but that's not there. It doesn't hurt me that it's not there. Because I think that's normal that it's not there, even if nothing had happened to you. So it doesn't hurt you that I don't, that you know that I don't see you as a mom? Right now, in this moment, as we're talking, no, it does not bother me. It's the first time I've heard you say that, and it does not bother me. Can I tell you it bothers me? Does it? Yeah, because I wish I could see you that way. I wish I did have that feeling. So what I say to you is, if that's ever there, I'm here waiting for you, for you to have that feeling with me. But if you don't, it's okay, because I'm holding that for you. More than three decades after Neola was taken, Beth is still waiting for her daughter. But on this day, at least they're talking. We went to Iago. Do you have a sense of what year that was? That's The Leap. I'm Judy Campbell. Okay.
So okay. I guess it would have been 89. Okay. And that's when we lived in Pachuca. Okay, yeah. And we went from Pachuca. You can see pictures of Neola, Beth, and Tom at kqed.org slash the leap. Seth Samuel composed the music for this piece. Nathan Campbell wrote and performed the song you're hearing now. Katie McMurrin is the engineer. Bianca Taylor helped with production. Deb George is the editor. And the executive producer is Joanne Wallace. This is the first episode of season three. You can find the first two seasons on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Subscribe and leave a comment. It really helps. Thanks for listening. Leaping lizards, is that really me? I wasn't born to fly, Lord, Lord, I was born to creep. So circle your buzzers over the yawning deep. I bet all I got against your life.